Good morning. Uh, welcome to my home. Um, this preach is going to be a bit of a whistle stop around our city. Um, I'm going to tell you a cool story. Uh, then we're going to head over to Ross for the principles that we can tease out of that story. Then I've asked uh, Nat to weigh in with some of the practices that that principle teaches us um, for our lives in this day and age. Uh, and then you'll come back up the hill to me uh, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, as you will know from last week, we're talking about our two favorite words in the whole Bible, the two words that divide the line between what makes sense to economists, doctors, behavioral scientists, uh, and what makes sense only to God. Um, but God are the two words. They're just our two favorite words. Uh, I'm reminded of one of my favorite but God uh, statements. You can't take some big cool story out of this, but it's a moment where the disciples uh, are having a bit of an argument with Jesus. They're quite freaked out about what he's had to say. This comes out of Matthew 19, and they've been boasting about why they should be chosen by God. Um, Jesus has just launched the bombshell that if you have lots of money, it's very hard for you to go to God. Um, maybe there's some scant comfort in that for many who are about to lose lots right now. I'm not sure. But uh, they're at some stage in their conversation, stop trying to prove or argue for why they're good enough for God. And finally start asking a wise question. Well, then can anyone be saved? Uh, and Jesus looks at them and goes, well, actually, that, now you're asking the right question. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I just love that idea. And so we're going to tell a but God story today. It's an ancient but God story. It's a very cool one. It's got talking donkeys. It's got invisible angels. It's got this mad prophet soothsayer dude from the Euphrates, Babylon area called Balaam, who interestingly enough uh, is probably the prophet that told the Magi about a star rising when Jesus would be born many, many, many years before. There's nowhere else in the Bible that we read anything about a star except for Balaam. And we know the Magi came from his home neck of the woods. So it's very possible that this strange dodgy nutcase called Balaam is actually the reason why the wise men from the east ended up at the nativity. So there's even a hint of the nativity story in this old story. Uh, and so we're going to go back to the plains of Moab uh, for this story. The Israelites have escaped from Egypt. They've almost finished their 40 years in the wilderness. They're no longer a ragtag, motley crew of insecure ex-slaves. They are now a fierce nation. God has been leading this nation and turning them into a pretty potent people, uh, and they're giving everyone a fright. They've already sorted out the Amorites, and the Moabites are terrified. They see this horde, this huge nation, turning up on their doorstep. And so a guy called Balak, the king of Moab, has a bit of a headache. He, he can see what's coming. Uh, he talks to his neighbors, um, and the Midianites, that's who they are, and the Midianites are actually supposed to be uh, friends with the Israelites. They were um, allies in the past. In fact, it was a Midianite who had led them to the wilderness. But for whatever reason, the Midianites join up with the Moabites and decide they need to sort out this Hebrew crew who've arrived. And so they hire this guy, Balaam. Balaam, I don't know what he was up to before, but he has a reputation as a prophet who, if he curses your enemies, they stay cursed. So he's a pretty handy weapon of mass destruction. So they send their emissaries to find him. They turn up at Balaam's house and say, Balaam, Will you, we'll hire you to come and curse the Israelites. Balaam says no. He says, I've actually already got it on good authority from God that these people you want me to curse are blessed. So there's nothing I can do about it. And he sends them packing. They come back a second time, having reported back to Balak and the elders of Midian, and they, and they offer him even more money. And good old Balaam says no again, which is, it turns out, quite counter to his character. Uh, but he turns down the money and says, I can't help you. Uh, God has blessed these people. 
God then intervenes. God speaks to Balaam overnight and tells him, no, go along with these guys, but say only what I tell you to say. That's really important. So the next morning, Balaam gets up and says, all right, I'll come. Then we get into the interesting part of the story. Balaam saddles up his faithful donkey, who apparently he'd had for a long time, uh, and heads off to Moab. En route, the donkey malfunctions. Um, there's an angel that Balaam can't see blocking the way. And, um, and so the, the donkey heads off into a field to get around the angel the first time. Balaam thinks the GPS has gone on the fritz and so curses the poor animal, gets it back on the street. A little later, the angel blocks their way again. Now they're in a vineyard and there's a wall and there's a narrow way. And so like any sane donkey, uh, he stays as far from the angel as he possibly can. Angels are not good for the health of donkeys. And so this donkey uh, squeezes up against the wall, crushes Balaam's foot in the process. Um, a very badly behaved horse in the free state did that to me once. And it is excruciatingly painful. And you do end up abusing the, the animal. So Balaam's turning the air blue, cursing his donkey, um, and on they go. Then they come to a third spot. Um, where God is really trying to get Balaam's attention once and for all now. It actually so often goes like this, doesn't it? Kind of sequentially, God eventually grabs our attention. And the angel blocks their way in a narrow sort of gorge type thing where there's rock either side. Donkey can't go forward, can't even squeeze around, so it just lies down. It's the only reasonable thing for that poor donkey to do. Balaam starts freaking out, losing his mind. He's busy abusing the donkey, kicking it, I don't know. And uh, the donkey says, why are you doing this to me? Why are you treating me so badly? You can't make this stuff up. This is actually what happens in the story. The donkey speaks to Balaam. Balaam doesn't bat an eyelid. He doesn't think, my donkey is speaking to me. He doesn't think, my donkey's never spoken to me before. It's never behaved like this before. He just does what men have been doing for centuries ever since and just argued that he had the right directions. Um, and it's fascinating to know that that's not a modern phenomenon. And so he gives it horns. He, he tells the donkey, you're just trying to make a fool of me. I mean, I love that he is actually just arguing with an ass, but he doesn't even think about that. But actually, this donkey has more sense than him. And the donkey goes, well, I've never done anything like this to you before, have I? And that gets the wheels starting to turn in Balaam's mind. Yeah, that's actually true. This is something slightly abnormal. Perhaps there's a third variable here. It's not just the donkey's fault. It's not just about me and him. Maybe there's something else going on. A word to the wise, there's almost always a third variable going on when someone is treating you in some strange way. So the penny drops, Balaam's eyes are open, and he sees there's an angel. And this angel is angry. This angel is not impressed with what Balaam is up to. Balaam immediately repents and says, I've sinned. This is interesting. He then says, do you want me to head home? And the angel says, no, you can carry on going, but say only what God tells you to say. At first, it might seem like God's being a bit flaky or unfair on Balaam, right? Balaam had said no, God said you should go. Now it seems like God's opposing him and is cross that he's going. But think about what's just gone on. Balaam immediately knew that he was in the wrong before he even asked if he was supposed to go home or not. There's some other thing that Balaam has done wrong. And we know with hindsight that at the end of the story, Balaam does do exactly what the angel is telling him not to do. He says more than what God told him to say. He technically does what God tells him to say. You'll see. He, he says only what God is commanding him to say. But then he just throws a final 10% in at the very end of his employment with King Balak. And that causes all kinds of chaos for God's people. Can't say this for sure, but I just wonder if some of these ideas were already starting to brew in Balaam's mind, that he could technically obey the letter of the law, you know, technically do what God had told him to do, but also earn his money on the side and go a little further than God had asked him to go. It's fascinating to me. You, going further than God asks you to go is just as bad as not going at all. And so the angel confronts him and says, you say only what God tells you to say. Stop cooking up ideas to say some other stuff on the side. Balaam goes, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Off they go. They get to Moab, 
and the king and King Balak takes uh, Balaam to three different places where he has a view of the Israelite encampment down on the plains. Stands them up, they do sacrifices, whatever other stuff they had to do, and then it's Balaam's moment to curse the people of Israel. And something amazing happens. The first time he gets up to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, he says, I can't curse what God hasn't cursed. And basically then prophesies some good things over the people of Israel. His employer is not very impressed, takes him to another spot. He then, in this poem uh, that he speaks over the people of Israel, says, in fact, not only can I not curse what God hasn't cursed, because God has blessed these people, I am forced to speak blessing over them as well. So he speaks a blessing over the people he was hired to curse, much to everyone's frustration. Balak then hauls him off to a third spot where he can see all of Israel and camp below him. And Balaam takes it even further than he had before. Not only does he say, I can't curse what God hasn't cursed. In fact, I have to bless what God has blessed. He, in this third speech that he gives, says God takes the welfare of his people so personally that anyone who blesses them will be blessed and anyone who curses them will be cursed. Just listen to what that says. God takes the welfare of his people so personally that anyone who blesses you will be blessed and anyone who curses you will be cursed. Incredible. Obviously, Balak's not very impressed with his employee. This hasn't gone according to plan at all. Uh, Balaam spouts off a few other prophecies that are all really favorable to Israel. And so that kind of concludes his cameo in the story, except that we learn a few chapters later in the book of Numbers that he had then mentioned to Balak before he left, hey, listen, give up on all this supernatural stuff. You can't curse what God hasn't cursed. You can't curse what God has blessed. Just take your dodgiest, prettiest girls, send them off into the Israelite camp. These guys have been in the wilderness for 40 years and let nature take its course. It's grotesque, it's seedy advice, but it works. And so the men of Israel, many of them are tempted into sexual sin, which is actually just a gateway drug into idolatry. And they remove themselves from trusting God. They remove themselves from relationship with God. And that's in fact the only way that anything bad is ever able to to happen to them. Cool story, right? I mean, it's a fascinating story. I love the faithfulness of God in this. I love the sovereignty of God in world events. I love the fact that God is able to work even through strange Gentiles who seem to be opposed to his purposes to nevertheless commit to the purposes he has for his people. It's all very wonderful. But the truth is, in my culture, we don't speak about curses a whole lot. In fact, even in sort of Western church world that I'm used to, we rarely say bless you when people sneeze. And maybe when we mean good luck, but we know because Christians aren't really supposed to say good luck, we should say something sort of churchy. But the idea of blessings and curses, what's the principle here? So I've asked Ross to explain to us a little how the principle of blessing and cursing might actually work for us right now. Paul's right. We don't use words like curse or bless so much anymore. Unless you're an American football star, then everything is hashtag blessed. But we're not trying to speak about cars and houses and girlfriends. We are talking about something spiritual that has a power over the physical. And to be blessed from Scripture, it's this word barak. And what barak means is it's, it's actually a complex word. It, it means to receive a gift or to kneel in response to receiving a gift or to be highly favored or to be chosen for a blessing. It's, it's a complex word. So the best way to understand complex words in the Hebrew is to look at them in context. So when you look at the word barak in the first context, which always has primary meaning, you see God blessing Adam and Eve. And he says, multiply, fill the earth and rule over the fish of the sea. Basically, take dominion of the world is what he says. Now, you've got to think about that for a moment because God tells Adam, who is fully formed and fully created, and 
probably is going to do those things anyway. So God speaks to a latent potential, a sitting potential, and he speaks a blessing that has a causative power to cause it to come to pass. With God's blessing, Adam both understands what he's called to do and understands that there's a power upon him to do it. This is a blessing. A blessing is a a causative power. This principle of blessing was so strong that when you look at the lives of the patriarchs, a lot of our theology or a big chunk of our thinking comes from Jacob and Esau. Jacob was prepared to risk his life to trick, to deceive Esau from his blessing. He, he covered his, his arms with goat's hair so that he would, he would feel like his brother and smell like his brother. And he goes up to his dad and he steals the blessing. And it's so powerful. They understood this principle so well that when Esau comes to his dad and says, Dad, can't you just bless me too? His dad, Isaac, says, sorry, my son, Jacob's taken the blessing. He understood the power of blessing. Similarly, with curses. Curses in Scripture, a curse was considered to possess an inherent power that would result in a certain outcome. Jesus cursed a tree, and by the next day it had withered and died. There was an outcome that happened as a result of cursing. Now, when we use words like curse, that's when most Westerners or most modern thinkers shut down. We kind of go, oh, that doesn't really happen. But I want to argue that we we kind of mysteriously do believe this, even if you're not a Christian. So we say stuff when things go wrong to people we don't like that much. We say, what goes around comes around. Or we say, that's just karma. Why do we say that? Because we somehow believe that the universe is fair and there's a causative power that will cause right to happen on the earth. Or else we say things like, they're just lucky. Or you've heard that statement, Everything that person touches, it just turns to gold. If you've heard those kind of statements or you've said those kind of things, what you're saying is that there's a, a force on them. There's an inherent causative power that's working in them or through them. Similarly, we, we use it in the opposite sense. Everything that person touches turns to not gold, to something brown. Everything that they're involved in doesn't work. It doesn't matter how much they try. It doesn't matter how much advice they get, how hard they work. It just seems that it never works. You ever ever heard that said? You ever said that about someone? It's this thought that there is no way for them to achieve the outcome they're trying to achieve because there's some force against them. The Bible would call that being cursed. The thing about being a Christian is if you're in Christ, you are blessed. And the big principle that we're trying to get out of this text that comes shouting out of Numbers 22 verse 12, it says this, but God told Balaam, do not go with them. You are not to curse these people for they have been blessed. Here's the big idea. You cannot curse what God has blessed. You cannot put a force against a Christian who is under the blood, which means who has been forgiven for their sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross, who've been covered over by Jesus' love and his forgiveness and his righteousness. You cannot put a force, a negative force on that person if they are in Christ, if they're in relationship with Jesus, and if they believe and put all their faith in Jesus to forgive them of their sins because of his blood shed for them. If a person 
is living in connection with Jesus hidden in Christ, they cannot be cursed. Balan understands this. Seven times he tries to curse Israel. Every time he gets there, God tells him to bless Israel. You cannot curse what God has blessed. And so he goes away and he says to Balak, we capture this in Revelation 2.14, if you're looking for the text. He says to Balak, the only way we're going to get these guys cursed is if we can pull them out from God's blessing. The only way we're going to be able to cause a force against them is if we can pull them away from the covering of God. You've got to know this. The only way Satan can kill you, rob from you, steal from you, destroy you, is if he can pull you out from the covering of God, if he can tempt you to have faith in another. So this is what Balaam does. Balaam, who is an agent for Moab, Moab was a picture of evil. The tribe of Moab came from Lot sleeping with his daughters. They get him drunk. It's, it's an incestuous relationship from the beginning. It's a picture of evil. Moab, evil, sends his agent Balaam to curse. And so Balaam can't curse. So he goes back to evil and he says to evil, this is what you're going to need to do. Send your woman out and get them to seduce the men into sexual, basically, orgies that involved worshipping another god so that we can pull these Israelites out of the protection of God into worshipping another god and then we can curse them. This is, this is his plan. And here's what you've got to know as a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're in Christ. It doesn't matter if you've got the world caving down around you. Joseph he was in a prison at the bottom of the bottom. He was still blessed. Isaac, he was in a drought in the worst possible situation, but he was blessed and what he sowed reaped hundredfold. Here's, here's the thing. It doesn't matter the disaster that you find yourself in, whether we're in COVID and the economy has collapsed. If we are blessed, it will work from the inside out. It doesn't matter if everything on the outside is saying you're cursed. If you're in Christ, you put all your faith in Him. You've got to know that you are blessed and you will live blessed. I want you to know that you have to stay in Christ to stay blessed. But Nats is going to talk about how this kind of works itself out. And so I'm going to hand over her, to her to wrap this up. So over to you, Nats. Thanks, Ross. Um, it is such an important thing to know um, how to actually live out practically. And you touched on a scripture that I just want to start with. Um, this is from Ephesians 3, verse 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, because we are united with Christ. And so we know that we are blessed with everything, um, every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. But how does that translate to reality? Because we, we know it and we believe it, um, but when it doesn't kind of match with the reality of what's going on around us, it's very difficult for us to know how to kind of practically live with this reality. Um, and I think obviously each and every one of us is facing things which could make us right now feel like we're living potentially more in a cursed reality than a blessed one. Uh, job losses, companies that are, are facing closure, academic years that have been really um, challenged and 
relationships that are struggling. There are just so many things that people are facing right now which would make it very difficult to, um, to claim that they're walking and, and living in a blessed space and with every spiritual blessing. Um, for some of us, it isn't just uh, the COVID-19 crisis which has made us feel this way. For some of us, we just seem to have these cycles of, of just not feeling blessed, feeling like things are just coming at us and kind of asking ourselves, um, is this, am I not living under a curse or something? And so how do we actually then practically live in a way that, that shows and, and accesses this principle of being blessed in Christ? So um, I just sort of pull the apostle and we know he faced so many difficulties and we know that he was in Christ, um, that he was walking in his calling and that he was staggeringly obedient and he, he faced a lot. And so I just wanted to share this um, passage with you from 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. So they're going through, you know, some difficult things, but they've decided how they're going to go through them. And some of these things we, we can kind of, uh, you know, can describe a little bit maybe how we're feeling in some of our realities. But it says they commend themselves to going through it in this way, picking up from verse 6. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And um, I just think that describes the spiritual ammo with which they're dealing with all of these difficulties and challenges. And then from verse 8, we see some kind of comparisons here. It says, through glory and dishonor, through bad report and good report, through genuine yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed. And there's these kind of, you know, it's describing two kinds of realities. And um, it's, it's a little bit, to me, like the, the clash of the two kingdoms, of this kingdom and of God's kingdom. And then finally, in verse 10, and I think this is to me where the, where the key is, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Um, there really is to me a key in that. How do you have nothing and yet possess everything? And it really speaks to me about what we're focused on. What are we looking at? Um, are we focused on this kingdom or on God's kingdom? Because if we're focused on and presenting ourselves in God's kingdom and really aware and grabbing hold of all of these spiritual blessings and, and living them out practically, then we can be sorrowful uh, yet rejoicing and poor yet making many rich and having nothing and yet possessing everything. So I think that it, it really does come down to that, um, to practically live this out. It's about what we're focusing on. Are we presenting ourselves in God and understanding his kingdom and allowing that to shape realities? It, it allows us then to, to be fearful but allow the fear of this world to be squashed under the faith from another kingdom and the anxiety of this kingdom to come under the peace from another kingdom. So I think that the easiest way for me to really explain what this practically looks like is to share a personal story. A few years ago, we were really struggling financially and we were facing losing our home and potentially more. And um, I decided to fast one day. Fortunately, by that stage in my faith walk, I'd realized that you don't fast to change God's mind. It isn't a kind of a, a barter or a, 
a deal where you go, if you do this, I'll do that. It was more just a day of setting apart to really hear from God, to have those moments of weakness um, where in the flesh and in this world we, we need food and all of these things, but in, then we get to access the spiritual realm and to be strengthened by God and to really just become so much more aware of Him. And so towards the end of this day, I was sitting on our bed and kind of looking out under the window, just past our deck, I saw this little um, bird kind of flapping, trying to fight against the wind, and, and then this eagle kind of swooped over, and you can work out which, uh, who was who out of the two birds. Um, but I really just felt that moment of, of seeing the eagle and just feeling God's presence just flood me, flood the room, just um, a moment of really and truly knowing that I, I had absolutely everything that I needed in God. It was that moment of, of really knowing that I had access to every spiritual blessing, that all I needed was in God. And if there was nothing else, it would be okay. Um, and yet that it's not that we need to step into a place of having nothing else. But when you, when you have that realization and when you allow God to, uh, to make himself so big and, and you're so aware of his presence, and there's a shift that takes place. It was a shift that took place in my heart in that moment in that room. And it doesn't mean I've never had anxiety or fear ever since, but everything shifted in the sense that suddenly being aware of these spiritual blessings inside of me, um, they were not able to shape what was going on the outside as opposed to what had been happening, which was circumstances and the storms on the outside had been shaping what was going on the inside. Because as Ross said, if you are blessed, you are blessed. That's not up for grabs. It's just, what are we focusing on? What kingdom are we focused on that will allow us to walk in and from a position of blessing, even in, in the hard times? Um, just back to Joseph. Joseph was blessed when he was in prison, and he was blessed when he was the second most powerful man in Egypt. And we're blessed when things are going well, and we're blessed when we're dealing with the most horrendous things. The blessings inside of us, it is not up for grabs. It is in Christ, uh, for those of us in Christ, it is we have access to every spiritual blessing of the heavenly realms of another kingdom. And um, so for me, it really is about practicing his presence, about doing whatever you need to do to, to remind yourself of what it is that he has put inside of you, to, to become aware, to um, present yourself with him, and to know that his kingdom is one that brings joy, love, peace, uh, provision, solutions, um, it allows, even though you're poor, to extend wealth. Um, it, it just changes everything. Everything that this kingdom would want us to believe and kind of quiver under the other kingdom, the kingdom of God, says is not true. We have these blessings and they can, we cannot be cursed. These blessings cannot be taken away from us. So um, I want to hand over to Paul, who's going to finish off this, um, this message for us today. Thank you. Thank you, Nats. Um, I've loved what Ross and Nats have had to say. It's just so beautiful, the idea that I am irrevocably, permanently blessed by God, that until proven otherwise, I'm blessed. And I don't know how anyone can prove otherwise because God has said that he's blessed me and if he's blessed me, no one can curse me. That's an amazing set of ideas. And that phrase being being blessed with every spiritual blessing, that that's a wellspring for me, that even when circumstances are difficult, when struggle does come, when the external blessings seem to be lagging, that internal being blessed with every spiritual blessing can be such a wellspring, can be such a source of life that I can 
be joyful even in the midst of it, that I can overflow with life and creativity and security even in the midst of it. And in fact, I can even start to overcome some of those circumstances. Really incredible stuff. It may occur to you as you're listening to this, I don't know, perhaps it hasn't. But for me, if I'm listening along to this, there might be just the shadow of a question. Who are these people to claim this stuff? I don't know if you've thought that. Who are these church leaders to basically say that the people in their church must be blessed or else? You know, I mean, like, what gives us the right to say something like that? Maybe as you've been listening, something inside you has been leaping and you think, yes, I do want to be one of God's people. And I do believe that this principle of blessing and if you're blessed by God, you can't be cursed. I want that to be true for me. But what right do I have to claim that for my life? I want to end by answering that question as resoundingly as I know how to answer. Um, because this has absolute sort of legal solidity to it, that you can be absolutely sure that it is, it's your right to claim this. Um, and so we're going to go to one of many passages in the New Testament that explain how this principle of blessing and cursing can actually be claimed by ordinary folks like you and me. Uh, let's read out of Galatians 3. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Now we know a little bit about blessing now. So we're hearing that we are invited into a community of blessing because of something that Jesus has done. Let's hear a little bit more about what that is. Um, from verse 10, but those who depend on the Lord to make them right with God are under his curse for the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. So essentially what we've heard so far is that there is one route into this life of blessing where you are uncursable, and that is to obey the whole law. And that promise stands. I suspect that promise is still absolutely valid today if anyone could pull it off. But we know from bitter experience throughout all of human history, we just can't. We can't keep the whole law, which means that if you don't measure up to all of it and gain the blessing, you get the inverse. There's actually a curse attached to the law. Okay, so is there another route into the life of blessing if it can't be done by our own deserving and obeying? Well, let's continue from in verse 11. So it's clear no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law which says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. So we're starting to hear that there are two routes into this. There are two ways that you might say, I have the right to claim to be one of God's people who is uncursable and blessed. From verse 13, how does this really work? But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. This is mind-blowing. The one person who had no right to be cursed, the one person who had no business being on a tree, which according to Scripture is the symbol of those who are cursed, was Jesus. Surely he obeyed the whole law. He was perfectly one of God's people. He was God's own son, for goodness sake. And yet he engineered it so that he would receive a curse, the one who had no business being cursed, so that we could enter into this lineage of those people of God, just like the ones that Balaam tried to curse, who absolutely are God's blessed people. And we didn't get there via this root of the law. And so your good behavior, your obedience, your deserving, how big and brave and strong and kind and good and how much you prayed, none of that enters into it. It's purely the fact that Jesus was cursed so that you could be part of this perpetually, unstoppably, irrevocably blessed group of people. 
that's the right we have to claim this. Which means, and this almost sounds strange to say, that as I look ahead to my future, there's so much that I don't know. There's so much that you don't know about your future. But one thing you can be absolutely certain of is that you will be blessed. Apparently, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's what God has said. And he takes the welfare of his people personally. I know that I don't deserve that. And in fact, I know that tragedy is probably going to come my way, loss and struggle. And usually the mindset to respond to those struggles would be one of trying to find someone to blame. But if I'm going to take this principle seriously, then what that means is when I experience struggle or tragedy or loss, my mindset is not trying to find blame, but trying to find blessing. My assumption is there is blessing for me in here somewhere. I am irrevocably blessed. It is guaranteed. I don't know a lot of stuff that's going to happen to me. I do know that I will be blessed if I've put my faith in Jesus because I do know that he was cursed, even though he shouldn't be. And so that's my legal, legal right. That's what gives me the right to say, I will always be blessed by God. It may look strange. It may look different. Sometimes I might be sorrowful, yet rejoicing simultaneously. My circumstances may take some overcoming. But my assumption is not that there is someone to blame when suffering comes. My assumption is there is blessing here somewhere. And I'm going to find it because I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing which can overflow. Now that is absolutely potentially part of your story. That can be your claim as well. You can look ahead to your future saying, I don't know a lot. I do know that I will be blessed. Now, if you want to be certain of that, then Scripture is clear. We have to put our faith in Jesus. It's not, there's no more rocket science to it than that. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. Some of you already have put your faith in Jesus and need to remind your spirits that this is the case. Some of you maybe prayed a prayer like this long ago and you've fallen away a little bit and these circumstances are shaking your assumptions and it's time for you to recommit your life to Jesus. Some of you may never have prayed a prayer like this, but we're essentially going to pray a prayer that puts our faith back in Jesus and allows us to be in the people of God who are irrevocably, unstoppably blessed. So pray along with me if you're comfortable. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you received a curse so that I receive blessing, that karma can't touch me anymore, that he had it coming, can't touch me anymore, that what I deserve has nothing to do with what I'm going to get, that because you were cursed, Jesus, I can be blessed and blessed perpetually. Thank you so much. I recognize that you are God and I claim that you are my God. I see you as a savior of many and I claim you as my savior. I see that you are a king of a nation of people and I want to be part of that eternal nation of people. You are my king, Jesus. And so thank you so much for saving me, causing me to be blessed, giving me a hope and a future, making me part of God's people. I'm going to live for your glory for the rest of my life. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. Please let us know in the live comments if you're busy listening live so we can pray with you right now. Um, Otherwise, reach out to us. But thank you so much for joining us in all of our homes this Sunday morning. We can't wait to chat soon. God bless you, and we know that he will.